Hey everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today I have with me our guest for this episode, Brett McCracken. Welcome to the Church Theology Podcast, uh, Brett. Thank you, Kirk. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Brett is a senior editor for the Gospel Coalition. He is the author of several books, such as Hipster Christianity, When Church and Cool Collide, Gray Matters, Navigating the Space Between Legalism and Liberty, Uncomfortable, The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community, and now most recently, he's authored a book called The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. That book came out last year. I believe I read that in the summer. Um, or yeah, there's a time where I took a vacation up to a cabin with my daughter and I read a bunch of books on technology and the technological age. And this mm-hmm. was one of those in that time period. And it was quite good. Um, and so in addition to writing books, though, Brett um, also uh, writes for different places like the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Huffington Post, CNN, the Princeton Theological Review, the Gospel Coalition, of course, Christianity Today, Relevant Magazine, ERLC, Canon and Culture, Q Ideas, and many more. Uh, so very prolific. And he lives with his family in Southern California, and he is an elder at his local church, Southlands Church. And so today we're going to be talking about that book um, I just mentioned, The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. This book in particular won the Gospel Coalition uh, Book of the Year in the category of Christian Living. And then I saw it was also a finalist in Christianity Today's Book of the Year Awards for the category of Culture and the Arts. So let me begin by asking you this question, Brett. What was your impetus for writing this book? Or why did you feel that a book like this was needed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> thanks for, for having me on and, and dialoguing about the book. Kirk, um, I would say the impetus was probably threefold. One, just my personal feeling as someone who works in, um, I'm a digital journalist. I work for a website. I'm kind of in the space of the internet, social media constantly. It's kind of like where I live um, during the workday. And I, I just, I feel like the more time you spend online and in that space that you can kind of feel yourself become more foolish, like by the minute, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can feel yourself being dumbed down. And I was experiencing that in my own life and just the, the diet that I, that was feeding me by being kind of in that space too much. Um, yeah, it just made me think, man, like if I'm experiencing this and I'm a pretty intentional person who's aware of this dynamic, like what is happening to the people who who aren't even thinking through their diets in the digital age. So that was probably the biggest one, just me personally feeling like I, I need this. Like I need a book, a book like this to help me stay um, grounded in wisdom um, in a, an age of foolishness. Uh, the second impetus is probably um, pastoral. I'm an, I'm an elder in a local church. And I would say one of the biggest emerging challenges for, for any pastor, anyone who's discipling Christians in the digital age, is this, this dynamic of um, the internet is feeding people, you know, all of this content. We're swimming in this array of content, podcasts and YouTube and so many different voices are coming into everyone's um, hearts and minds. And I think it's pulling a lot of Christians, even church-going Christians are being taken captive in different directions, you know, whether it's partisan politics on one side or the other or conspiracy theories or whatever. The, the diet of media matters for your spiritual formation. I think pastors and church leaders are, are really starting to see that and, and they need resources and tools to help figure out how can we disciple Christians in this environment? How can we shepherd them toward better habits and better diets of um, intakes? So the pastoral hat that I wear was a big part of why I wanted to write this book. And then finally, the, the parent in me as a dad of two young mm. sons, um, you know, I think wisdom, even biblically, if you read Proverbs, like there's all this language of like, son, listen to my instruction. Right, right. It's 
wisdom is something that the generations have to impart to one another. And um, I think now that I'm a dad, I'm especially mindful of like, how, how can I set my children up for success when it comes to wisdom in an age that's so prone um, to foolishness? So um, I kind of wrote this book for them in hopes that one day they would read it, you know, and, and already um, I try, we try to practice the wisdom pyramid in our family in, in, in any, any sort of simple ways that a three-year-old can practice it. Um, we try that. So it's already yeah. been a good thing for our family. And I hope that it's a tool that we can keep returning to as we raise our kids. So, yeah. yeah. That's good. In many ways, I was at a uh, conference, the Center for Pastor Theologian Conference, maybe I think it was like two years ago, mm-hmm. two and a half years ago, and they did one um, on technology. And I remember just we were trying to think through things in that in that little conference. And in many ways, one of the observations is that technology develops faster than our ability to really think through what we're putting ourselves into and subjecting ourselves to. You yep. stay at one point in the book. Um, in the competitive landscape of the digital age, the quote-unquote food of information is not getting more nutritious. It's veering in the direction of junk food. Doritos and Skittles will always get more clicks than spinach. And so we walk down the buffet line of social media snacks and online junk food, daily gorging ourselves to the point of gluttony. Unsurprisingly, it is making us sick. So I think we're getting, I think you're exactly right. We're getting bombarded with this and it feels like a particularly pressing need today as we're emerging into this digital age that we are, that we're in. Um, the subtitle of your book, um, is feeding your soul in a post truth world. And I'm, I'm interested in that, the post-truth um, mm-hmm. idea there. I can think of other possible alternatives um, that you and I know sometimes authors don't get all the say in how they title their book. So maybe your publisher had something to do with this, but I can think of other alternatives uh, that you could have gone with instead of post-truth world, maybe something like secular world or yeah. post-Christian world or the digital age or information age. Yeah. So I'd be curious to hear you talk more about what you mean mm-hmm. by post-truth world, mm-hmm. what exactly characterizes a post-truth world, and why you selected that language. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think um, that it actually was my original subtitle. So nice. I, there it you was, go. sometimes the publisher wants to tweak it and change it, but... The crossway went with my original subtitle, which I'm glad about because the post-truth idea really was the kind of intellectual origin point for this project. Um, in fact, the, the whole Wisdom Pyramid um, graphic predates the book, uh, and it came out of a conference um, talk that I was given. Um, I was asked to give a like TED Talk, like a short talk on basically our epistemological crisis that we're in, this kind of post-truth, alternative facts, fake news world that we live in. And it was a Christian conference, and I was asked to speak on, like, how do you find true wisdom and true joy in a fake news world, in, in kind of a post-truth world? And it was, it was during my talk that I, I created the Wisdom Pyramid image as like a visual aid to walk people through um, what I was arguing was how we approach this post-truth world is we need to we need to build a diet that orients us around what's solid and true and that gives us bearings in a world where we've lost our way we, we're, we're wandering aimlessly because we don't know what's true anymore we don't know what to, what to trust we don't know you know nothing is solid anymore um, all authorities have kind of crumbled in today's world so we have to kind of rebuild from scratch a solid foundation um, of of wisdom, and that's what that's where the wisdom pyramid idea originated. So, yeah, I mean, the post truth thing—it's it's a phrase that I think has become more and more talked about in recent years. I think Oxford uh, English Dictionary—that was their word of the year in 2016, I believe, maybe 2017. Mm, post that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's something that even non-Christians, even the secular world is noticing, which is interesting, right? Because, right. you know, secular people, like, how do you even have a vocabulary of truth? Like it's, um, and yet as a society, we're recognizing that something has shifted. Probably the internet and technology has a lot to do with it, but there's, we're finding it increasingly hard to 
identify truth and to discern, you know, what is fake, what is real, what is true, what can be trusted. Um, and one of the one of the things that I find interesting, um, Time Magazine came out with uh, an article about this a couple years ago, and the cover had a three word question on it: "Is truth dead?" question mark And they they designed it, and this was this was very clever and telling. I think they designed it in such a way to mimic a design of a Time Magazine from fifty years earlier, hmm. where the the three word question back then was, is God dead? Question mark. And so Time Magazine, this secular, you know, media company was making that connection, was basically conceding that the death of truth is the natural result of the death of God. Like if you do away with the transcendent, um, then of course there's no hope for truth in any sort of agreed upon kind of consensus so that's where we're at right we're we're Mm -hmm. we're that far into the post god kind of um you know era that now truth is the casualty the very idea of having certainty having knowledge that you can trust is gone and we're seeing it in in our society right like if you look at polls uh, in terms of um trust people don't trust anything like they don't trust the government of course right (laughs) for good reason (laughs) they don't but they don't trust journalism they don't trust Mm -hmm. scientists anymore covid Mm -hmm. you know has really accelerated that and like yeah we don't trust science we don't trust doctors we don't trust experts we don't trust pastors you know Mm -hmm. and so this crisis of trust is related to the crisis of truth um and i think that that's this world where we really need help like guiding our attention in the right places feeding at the right sources that can actually nourish us with solid you know um, meaty substantive truth yeah and in place of it's not just all these sources we don't trust but then in place of that it's often uh turning we got to turn to something so we turn to things that are actually like arguably not better, um, right. much more shallow, but for right. some reason they fit. Maybe like you talk about how we're much, we're very apt to kind of pursue the path of least resistance. So rather yeah. than having sort of more recognized authorities yeah. that we can trust in society, we still have to trust something and we're, we're kind of appealing to, it's a vicious cycle of appealing to what we want to hear, what tickles our ears. Um, I think yeah. the idea of post-truth, post-truth does obviously relate to some of the other ideas I threw out, like the secular age. So like Charles Taylor, who I'm sure you're familiar with listeners, he's a Canadian philosopher that did a lot of work on kind of um, like what it means to live in a secular age. He talks about how once you get rid of that transcendent kind of, there's something out, something more solid outside of us that we can grab onto as like a basis for truth and a basis for morality. Once you don't have that, he talks about that. We have to just appeal to what he calls the imminent frame where we just Mm -hmm. have to, we just have to kind of make sense of it. We're just hanging ideas on nothing essentially. And so secularism, the the idea of the secular age we live in that, that contributes to a post-truth world. Mm -hmm. Also the digital and information age that we live in is again, that bombards us with Tons of information, can, some of it not at all true, some of it fake news. We don't know how to decipher. So all these things kind of go together mm-hmm. to exacerbate a sense of post-truth. Yeah. It's not just a problem, in other words, for the non-Christian who doesn't believe in God. It doesn't have a basis of transcendent morality. Right. It can even be a problem for Christians who hypothetically be- believe in some Absolutely. sort of absolute truth. Mm-hmm. But we have a hard time in this world being the sort of people who foster a pursuit of truth, which is where your book is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would you say with all that? What are some of the greatest dangers today that you think mitigate or act against the cultivation of wisdom? And how do you see these things playing out in real time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the first half of the book is really where I seek to answer that question and where I talk exactly, about yeah. the, the three like sources of our sickness. Um, and and they're, they're kind of three dynamics that are specific to the technology of the digital age, but not, not exclusively about technology, but technology has ex- exacerbated them. 
And so the three that I talk about are the too much kind of problem, the, the dynamic of the internet has exploded the options, right? And, and this mm -hmm. relates to Charles Taylor's Nova effect, right? Mm -hmm. um, which he, it's a big part of the sec secular age. Um, when you have all these options, all this information, even if it's a lot of it is good, a lot of it is, you know, helpful, it's still the problem of too much. Our brains are so overwhelmed with options that they're losing the ability to kind of sift through it all and to, to have the critical capacity to evaluate it. And there's actually brain science that is showing that our, our, our overstimulated brains are, are spending all of their energy playing triage with this constant bombardment of information hmm. all day, every day. Yeah, makes sense. All, that that there's no energy left our brains are literally spent by the by the end of that so we can't think critically because that that requires even more energy so if you if you're sensing that critical thinking is on the decline in the digital age there's actually science behind why that's happening um and that's so that's the too much information problem it's just like eating too much food is going to make you sick too much information binging on junk food gorging on it is going to make you sick. And you yeah. have a really good quote on this where you say on page 11, you say our world has more information, but less and less wisdom, more data, less clarity, more stimulation, less synthesis, more distraction, uh, mm -hmm. less stillness, more pontificating, less pondering, more opinion, less research, more speaking, less listening, more to look at, less to see, mm -hmm. more amusements, less joy. There is more, but we are less. That's a great description of what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in every way, right, there's, there's more, 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 more. And yet, um, I don't think many people would say like, we're, we're wiser for it, you know? <laughs> um, so if, if anything, the glut is working against our wisdom. So that's the argument in the information overload chapter um, of the book. The second like dynamic that I see that's working against wisdom and making it hard to be wise is just the speed of the age that we live in, the digital age. Um, we're just going too fast. We're too obsessed with cycling through information, moving on so quickly from one thing to the next. And I think all of us experience this when you're, even if you're like reading a good piece of content, an article at the Gospel Coalition, for example, or maybe you're watching a really good TV show on Netflix or a, a award-winning documentary, we still tend to move on so quickly to the next thing, right? Mm -hmm. Even Netflix, before you even finish an episode, it like says, watch, watch this next one. You know, it has suggestions for more. And so the speed with which we move through the digital age is not conducive to wisdom because it doesn't leave any space to actually evaluate and reflect and make connections and synthesize. Um, and speed is also not conducive to wisdom, not only in what we receive, but also in like what we say, right? Like how many of us have, mm -hmm. have run into that problem with you know, social media beckons you to speak out, share your opinions in real time, your instant reactions to things. And yet the Bible, right, James calls us to do the opposite, be quick to listen and slow to speak, um, slow to become ang angry. And every, everything in the internet age tells us to do the opposite, like go fast, share your opinions now, it's Instagram for a reason, right? It's Twitter, mm -hmm. these like tweets. Um, and so that's not, that's not conducive to our wisdom, um, just how fast everything moves. And it just, it creates this like orientation around the now with, that's, that's disconnected from um, kind of a bigger picture, the past, history, mm -hmm. the future. It's just all about being consumers of content in the now. And um, I think that posture is really not conducive to wisdom. Wisdom is, uh, is having a bigger view, is drawing from the resources of the past, um, making connections to the present, but, you know, not having narrow tunnel vision in terms of like, you know, the now, now, now. So, so that's the second one. And the third one is the, the me orientation of information, like the, the way that data and information is, is structured 
in the internet age is very much around the individual. That's what the, the whole idea of an algorithm is that your feeds are slowly perfected for you and you alone, right? No, no two social media feeds in the world are exactly the same. Um, so we don't, we're, none of us are experiencing the world in the same way. There's no shared reality uh, in the sense of what's kind of feeding us the news and feeding us the discourse. Um, it's all person by person. And that's a bad thing for wisdom because it just, anytime you're looking only to yourself and your own kind of preferences mm -hmm. and inclinations, um, it's not going to be a recipe for wisdom, right? The, the proverb says, you know, do not be wise in your own eyes. Um, do not lean on your own understanding. But that's kind of what, that's what the internet age, that's what the smartphone age wants you to do. Like lean on your own consumer instincts, right? <laughs> if, if, you, if, if your in impulse is to click on that, then we're going to feed you more things like that because that's, that's what you want, right? That's what, mm -hmm. that's what your um, hunger is leading you towards. But um, and the, the Bible just constantly warns us against that. You know, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's not good advice to just follow your heart. It's not good advice to just go with your gut and to trust your own instincts. <laughs> um, and that's, an, that's another thing within this world of too much information where we don't know who to trust and all these loud voices yelling at us kind of cancel each other out. So what do we do um, as a coping mechanism? We, we just kind of default to our own opinions many times. Like, and we just look within ourselves. If, if I'm hearing conflicting things from outside of myself and I, I've, I've gradually learned not to trust anyone, well, I'm just going to trust myself and I'm going to go with my instincts. And I don't think that's necessarily the best um, advice, even, even though I can kind of understand why people do that, because it is overwhelming to, to kind of assess the relative merits of um, what other people are saying. Um, but our society also reinforces this idea, right? That Oprah is telling people, you know, follow your heart, live your truth, you know, <laughs> you do you. Um, that's kind of the ethos of our age is just kind of, yeah, just you are the best authority. You don't let anyone else trump what, who you believe you are, what you should do. Um, and yet I think that look within yourself posture is, is a disaster for wisdom most of the time. Yeah. yeah it, it, in many ways, it, it, what you're talking about too, these the sort of personalized feeds and, and, I mean, that's just different than the era, like even when I grew up, you know, you had TV and I didn't have cable growing up, but even if you had cable, you had, it was just, it was the difference between a set amount of what, 10 channels versus right. limited. Know. Yeah. Yeah. But like everyone had the same, essentially the same broadcast. Whereas now like your YouTube feed or your social media feed, it's all going to be personalized. It has <laughs> the effect of, we don't want, we don't have a shared basis yeah. um, and of, of sort of information. Yeah. Um, you might say, well, having more information is helpful for forming our opinions. And that's true. But then there's almost a point where you have too much and it just becomes mm -hmm. it's too much to take in and mm -hmm. you just kind of have to zone it out. It mm -hmm. makes us into consumers, though, too. It has the result of only increasing our tendency to approach things like the church as consumers, because that's yeah. how we navigate uh, the rest of, of life. Or I, I think as well about the, uh, the your second your second point about the immediacy um, mm -hmm. The constant, um, the perpetual novelty is what you say. It reminds yeah. me of Alan Noble has a, a really good book called Distracted Witness, mm -hmm. um, where essentially we're bombarded with so many things that it just becomes white noise after a while. Right. We're not yeah. actually able to do any sort of deep thinking. It's yeah. just one more option just kind of looks like another thing on the buffet. We don't give it a lot of yeah. thought. We kind of move on. It doesn't help us cultivate deep sort of consideration, critical thinking and wisdom. Yeah. Um, I'd love to have you now. We've kind of mentioned the wisdom pyramid up until this point, but mm -hmm. what exactly is what is that? What is the wisdom period? Can you explain the idea yeah. for that? Yeah. In in brief, it's essentially taking the food pyramid and adapting it for knowledge. Instead of food groups that are you know helpful for a healthy diet, I'm basically saying like, what are the sources of information and knowledge most conducive to your wisdom? So if a food pyramid was guidance for 
a healthy physical body, the wisdom pyramid is guidance, if you will, for a healthy spiritual life um, that's full of wisdom and not foolishness. So, yeah, I mean, it's, that's that's essentially what it is. Like just like the food pyramid, where the the better, um, more nutritious food groups are at the bottom, the bread group, the vegetable group, you know, fruit group, and then at the top of the food pyramid, in the the little tippy top part of the triangle, that was where dessert fats, oils, and sweets was. So in my wisdom pyramid, the, the dessert category is where I put the internet and social media. So I'm making a point right there by putting this, this thing that has actually become the dominant source for most of us, if we're honest. Mm-hmm. Like we've tended to put that as the foundation of our diet. It actually needs to be up here in the like uh, least important kind of <laughs> use sparingly use with discernment category Mm -hmm. and and at the bottom what should be feeding us the most and and kind of occupying that more foundational um place in our diet is is the bible um, god's direct revelation to us right the Mm -hmm. source of the source of all wisdom is god and so of course if we want to be wise you know, the Bible needs to be the most important part of our diet. And then upward from there, I, I'm basically making suggestions for what are the most trustworthy sources that we have access to in this life for wisdom. And so what would be then the, in, those sort of in-between ones? And how did you go about yeah. ordering them the way you did? So you have the Bible at the bottom. That's most mm-hmm. foundational. Internet, mm-hmm. social media is on the top. What yeah. comes in between? Yeah, so um, I ordered it in the way that I did with simple logic, and that is if, if it's true that wisdom comes from God, um, if, if he is the embodiment, the standard, the source of all wisdom, then it stands to reason that we gain wisdom in proximity to God. So uh, the closer we are to God, the, the, the closer we are to wisdom. And so from the bottom up, you go from the most proximate to God in the Bible, and then gradually each level up is a little bit more removed from, from God. So the second level is the church. Um, and my argument for that is going, going on this proximity to God um, idea. The church is God's presence on earth among his people. This is his mission. This is his chosen project You know for for this earth. The church is God's plan A for what he's doing um, in the world. And so he is present there. The Holy Spirit is building the church, gathering people, gifting people um, with different gifts. Um, and it's it's got to be a part of our wisdom diet because that's, this is, you know, this is uh, God's very presence, not only in the local church now, but um the church across time is a is a deep you mm. know re- reservoir of wisdom that we need to draw upon there's 2000 years of rich wisdom in the church that um we we should make a steady part of our diet um so the church is the second level and then the third one which some people are like oh that's interesting nature why 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 do you put that as the third most important source of wisdom and uh, my argument is that it's it's proximity to God in the sense that it's His creation. It's it's His unmediated creation. He made this. It's His handiwork, and so it stands to reason that if we look at nature, if we observe it carefully, if we study it as the sciences do, um, there's wisdom to be gained because we're we're, we're studying the masterpiece of wisdom Himself, God. So just like you can learn about Vincent van Gogh by really studying his canvases, the, what he painted, you can learn something about a filmmaker by really digging into their filmography and, and looking at what they've made. God, we can learn things about God. We can sense things about his character by really studying nature. This is kind of a theological idea called general revelation that is, you know, has been around for a while. The special revelation of scripture is the most important revelation because it's clear God has given us this book. 
But general revelation is another way that God reveals himself through what he made. And the Bible itself kind of points us to this sort of revelation when it talks about, um, you know, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In Romans 1, Paul talks about this idea in terms of the pagans, even if they haven't received the special revelation of the gospel, there's things about God that they have no excuse not to acknowledge just by looking around them at the world that he made. So that's the idea that I'm getting at with nature as a source of wisdom. Um, and sadly, in a digital age, many people are just increasingly removed from nature, right? We're living in bubbles of media and looking at our phones when we're outside. Mm -hmm. And my argument is like, look around you <laughs> when you're outside, uh, look at the world God made. Um, and included in that world is humans, right? We are part of that creation. Um, and um, I think that foolishness is getting away from that idea that like we are creatures of a creator. It's our, our embodiment is not ours to make as we wish, you know, and do with as we wish. Like we belong to a creator. He has a design for us. He has purposes for us. And we, we need to kind of learn things from that design and, and not just kind of manipulate it however we wish. So that's nature. And then the next one up is um, books. And this is kind of an obvious one, I think, to some degree, like reading books. Yeah, that, that is a, a good source of gaining wisdom. Um, but what I talk about in the book, the chapter on books, is that it's not only the content that you read in a book that can make you wise. It's also just the format of actually like sitting down with one um, idea, with one author's perspective for a long period of time, giving your attention to a book in this fidgety digital age that we live in where we're going from like tweet to tweet and like maybe we'll read like a paragraph of this article and scan a headline over here and watch a 30 second clip on YouTube. Like to read a book is to slow down. So if, if the speed of the internet age is not conducive to wisdom, reading a book helps slow us down in really helpful ways. So <clears throat> not only the content in books, but also the format. And then um, the, the next one up uh, is beauty. And this is the arts, culture. Um, and my argument here is that this is helpful for our wisdom because it speaks to the fact that wisdom is not only a cerebral thing. It's also something that involves our, our loves, our heart, mm -hmm. our emotions, our senses, right? The Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just know that the Lord is good with facts that you've absorbed, but taste and see that the Lord is good. So we can experience God and learn things about him through beauty and through the beautiful world that he's made. And so I think beauty is an underrated um, source of wisdom in, in many Christian traditions, but it should be, it should be important for us. So, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. I, as I think about these categories, I mean, the Bible of course is, is pretty obvious, you know, and most, most evangelicals, you probably don't have to convince them yeah, of that. Right. Functionally, it, it, it's obviously always good to encourage that more. The church, you know, kind of fighting the idea of consumerism or, fighting the idea of individualism where it's just about me or sort of my curated um, Twitter feed or something where I only have to interact with the people I want to interact with and I can block everybody else. But yeah. actually having to commit to a body where there's going to be people who are different from you and people who are going to think differently from you. People are going to hold you accountable. You can't just run away from them and, and block them, but they're in your life. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of uh, wisdom there. I think nature, when I after reading your book, you know, I find myself indoors a lot and around technology a lot. And so I yeah. just remember now I'm in Wisconsin where it's really cold and I don't like being You kind of have to be indoors a lot. Yeah. yeah. But when it's a summertime, <clears throat> I'll make a point <clears throat> after reading your book. I just, it, it changed yeah. the way I thought about being outside more. Like I used to be outside a lot more when I was growing up, mm -hmm. um, growing up in Northern Wisconsin, especially, but mm. just trying to just be more, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to sound like new agey, but like, yeah. so don't hear it that way, but kind of this yeah. being in touch with my own creatureliness in the yeah, creative yeah. world. I thought yeah. your point about how, um, 
interacting with creation more reminds us that we're embodied people. We're creatures. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess that's what I, and books, you don't have to convince me much about books yeah. as a pastor. A lot of pastors right. love books, but just the wisdom of learning mm-hmm. from other people. Mm-hmm. And as you said, the long form discipline of actually mm-hmm. giving your attention. Mm-hmm. Beauty is, is another one. I, I do think you're right. It probably goes neglected where I think, um, part, but part you, your argument, as you said, part of the argument is that part of wisdom is actually having the affection for the right things Yes, and yeah. actually having our hearts, um, yeah. and our, <clears throat> like what we think of as beautiful be more yeah. and more transformed in line right. with right. Christ likeness as well. Right. And I think that's a really good point that often does go missed. So, yeah, yeah. There's a reason why music has played an important role in the church pretty much yeah. since the beginning, yeah. because, there, you know, early Christians recognized that it wasn't going to be enough to sustain the Christian faith by just, by just having these ideas and facts imparted. People's affections had to be stirred towards Christ and in the form of worship, and so that beauty plays that role. Song, you know, I love the the lyric um, in the the old hymn where it says, "Tune thy heart to sing thy praise." Like, yeah. like that's that's what beauty can do. It can it can tune our heart to the chord of the kingdom, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. where we're kind of our loves are being synchronized to, um, you know, the design of, of God's kingdom. So, yeah, I yeah. think beauty is is so important. And, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people who know a ton about Christianity. They're theological geniuses, um, but something feels off about their faith and and I think that some of that might have to do with a neglect of that affection uh, part. Yeah, James K. A. Smith has done a lot of work on this too. Yeah, I'm just thinking as sure. we're talking, or he's he wrote a popular book called I think something like you, "We Are What We Love" or "You Are You what Are you What love. You Love." Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but he's done some more academic works about like books like "Desiring the Kingdom," where essentially he's going back to Augustine's model yep. that says we are fundamentally like it's true like world like our worldview shapes. The decisions we make and our, our beliefs shape the decisions and the actions that we take. Uh, all that's true. Um, there's really solid scriptural evidence for that. But he wants to bring in the fact that we're not just brains on a stick. You yeah. know, we don't yeah. just – it's just not – we're not like computers that just yeah. kind of compute information and take action. But we are people who love and we mm-hmm. act in accordance with the things that we love the most. And yeah. so I think it's a really good point that we need to have our affection shaped and beauty and the arts. Mm-hmm. Things like that are really important. That's a good message for someone like me who tends to be more cerebral. Mm-hmm. So um, what would you say um, – let me ask this question. What does the Bible say about wisdom and how would you um, – kind of take that message and map it onto the argument yeah. of your books? Or in yeah. other words, how would you relate the Bible's message to your book's message? Yeah, I mean, I think the Bible, the big takeaway about wisdom is is that it's it's from God, right? It, it is A life of wisdom is a life oriented around God. Um, when, I, when I read Proverbs, in preparation for writing this book, you know, when you're writing about wisdom, you kind of have to like <laughs> yeah. read and reread Proverbs. And one of the things I noticed um, is just how often that kind of language of orientation um, shows up of like this holistic orientation around God. Like that, that is wisdom. Like foolishness is kind of this wayward, like going off the wrong direction and kind of instead of knowing your true north and having a solid orientation. It's this kind of like um, distractibility, you know, where, where Lady Folly calls out to you uh, and you're like, okay, I'm going to go follow Lady Folly. Like, in that, and I, I've talked about like the algorithms of social media today are like the Lady Folly of Proverbs. Like, hmm. and, and foolishness is like being susceptible to that, just being like, yeah, I'll, I'll click on that. I'll watch that. I'll, I'll read that just because the algorithm wants to pull my attention in that direction. Wisdom is about kind of having this steadfast, um, faithful orientation towards Christ, where we're looking to him, we're listening first and foremost to his voice in scripture, above all the other voices that are calling out to us, um, where all of our senses are oriented around around him. Um, in Proverbs 3, you know, Proverbs 3 um, is kind of like maybe like the thesis statement of Proverbs is 
where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So that speaks to the affections part, right? Like mm-hmm. trust in the Lord with, not just with your mind, but with all your heart. You need to love him if you want to be wise. Lean not on your own understanding. So that speaks to the emphasis in my book on don't look within yourself, right? Mm-hmm. As much as our culture and the algorithms are oriented around you, it's not a recipe for wisdom. Do not lean on your own understanding. Instead, in all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And I think that that speaks to the holistic nature of wisdom. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. Um, in, in what you say, in what you hear, in what you listen to, what you see with your eyes, um, you know, it's, it's all, um, it all needs to be oriented around the true source of wisdom um, in God. So, yeah, so I think that that big idea from Scripture, this holistic orientation around God as the true source of wisdom, is really what the Wisdom Pyramid is visualizing in the way that it builds up, you know, from the closest proximate sources to God. Yeah. In a recent interview, um, I want to ask you kind of for advice on maybe one specific area uh, of praxis. Mm -hmm. Um, In a recent interview, Tim Keller uh, said, I'd say that the culture is definitely more polarized than it has ever been. And I've never seen the kind of conflicts in the church in the past that we see today. Tim Keller was mm-hmm. a pastor for most mm-hmm. of his life, mm-hmm. retired now. Like this is a pastor who has, who's pastored for a, a long time. Yeah. Um, he says in virtually every church, there is a smaller or larger body of Christians who have been radicalized to the left, capital yeah. L that is, or to the right, capital R, by extremely effective and completely immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds, and communities. People mm-hmm. are bombarded 12 hours a day with pieces that present a particular political point of view, and the main way it seeks to persuade is not through argument, but through outrage. Mm-hmm. People are being formed by this immersive form of public discourse far more than they are being formed by the church. Yeah. This is creating a crisis, and no, I haven't faced anything like this in mm. the past well wow. where <laughs> it was quite the statement yeah. uh, coming from keller it's, um he's right though yeah i think yeah i mean i haven't lived long enough to mm-hmm. to know but mm-hmm. my sense is that we have we are on something that is quite problematic and and where would then you see um sort of news consumption news consumption fitting into your wisdom pyramid mm-hmm. how might your wisdom pyramid help us to think about news consumption mm-hmm yeah, I mean, I think the the thing about news consumption related to one of the quotes you quoted earlier about like um, like Skittles and Doritos like sell, <laughs> sell better than broccoli, you know, and or something like that. Um, they're always going to be more enticing to people. And yeah. the fact is, news is a business, and um, mm-hmm. I think part one of media literacy is just recognizing that like the people producing the news and sharing the news are seeking profit and Mm -hmm. increasingly in a crowded media landscape where there's not just three network news, you know, sites anymore. There's each, you know, city doesn't just have two newspapers, um, you know, the New York times and the New York post or whatever, uh, there's limitless options for people to get their news, to get their content. And so competition is fierce. And it's just true that um, extreme rhetoric and kind of um, bypassing any sort of nuance or complexity in favor of riling people up, uh, that sells better. That gets more clicks. That gets more eyeballs. And so that's why the dynamic Tim Keller is writing about is happening is because when we are consuming news, most of the news today is radicalized in one direction or the other, simply because it's more profitable for the news organizations mm-hmm. to do that. And, and it, it scratches our itch, right? Um, it's, it's, it feels good to watch if you're a conservative to watch Ben Shapiro, you know, own the libs, you know, like he does every day. It, it feels good to watch Rachel Maddow on the other extreme, like, you know, have some zinger that 
nails a conservative if that's if your persuasion is on her side and so we we consume things just like we consume skittles and doritos because it feels good right um, it doesn't feel good to eat broccoli so hence we don't do that as often as we should <laughs> um, mm. and so it would be better for us to consume news that was more objective and complex and patient and didn't rush to the hot take and didn't turn every news event into like a narrative, uh, political narrative. Like it would be better for us to consume news that way, but we don't do it because we're fleshly creatures who make choices based on our appetites and, and what scratches our itches. So yeah, I think news fits into the wisdom pyramid um, in, in, in all sorts of ways, but um, the, yeah, just the, I would put news kind of in that upper category of the internet and social media, cause that's the dominant place we receive news. So I'm not suggesting we need to like ignore what's happening in the world or, right. you know, have zero news consumption, but in the same way that, you know, most things on Twitter need to be taken with a grain of salt um, and should be kind of consumed with great discernment. Um, sadly, the same is true of news these days. There's, there's very little of it that um, is, you know, trustworthy on the, just uncritically, you know, consumed. So, yeah. yeah. But I, I, th- there's, there's other books that are just about the news consumption. Um, yeah. There's a great one by Jeff Bilbro that came out yep. last yep. year. Um, and I would recommend that. So I think I think the news piece is like a whole nother book discussion. Yeah, and it needs that's its own hu- book. hugely, hugely important um, because, man, I, I have seen the dynamic that Tim Keller is describing where Christians are catechized increasingly more by, you know, Fox News or CNN than they are by their church and by scripture and, mm. and our worldviews and our um our loves are being shaped in the direction of politicians and, you know, political talking points than they are towards orthodoxy and the creeds, you know, some, some Christians these days are more compelled by their political party platform than they are by the Nicene creed, you know? Um, And they can probably name like that their political party like platform more readily than they can recite, you know, the creeds sadly or feel more uh passionate about it feel that book by uh that book by uh jeffrey bilbro which i i think i'm two chapters into um mm. so i have i i need to get need to finish that one but it's called reading the times mm. a literary and theological inquiry into the news it's so far very good um yes i think that's I think that's super helpful. I remember when I was preaching Revelation 13 about the second beast, the false prophet, mm-hmm. who's kind of this pro- propaganda machine for the first beast. I sort of addressed in the sermon as application some of the ways that there are different messaging out there. In some ways, it would have been helpful to have read your book. Um, some of the messaging mm-hmm. that is out there that affects us, I think, mm-hmm. and and I'm, I'm sort of one who would be slow to to tell someone some really specific application that I don't think is yeah. tied to the text. Yeah. But I do think I'm more willing out of pastoral wisdom to tell people they they really probably should hold back on certain news consumption. I'm thinking particularly yeah. of uh, not like journalism per se, but yeah. but like uh, – cable news kind of news entertainment mm. and it, it's just it is uh fear sells and and mm. fear is kind of the currency of politics yeah um not necessarily truth and nuance that's not going to win you much and so no. um not in a world of sound bites and so uh, it's it's in some ways it's like knowingly injecting yourself with a substance mm-hmm. that's harmful like <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. not a good idea like i just no. i just really advise people against it you can yeah. say well i'm going to listen to the other side too and in no. many ways that i'm not sure if that's helpful because now you're just injecting yourself with two things that are harmful um right. so i i'm just the, the more that i see this thing that tim keller's seen the more i'm just advising yeah. people like probably mm-hmm. should just hold off um that maybe yeah. those sort of talking heads are not the most helpful for you um yeah. in our unity as and- a church and it's all about putting it in its proper place, right? Just just like that upper contingent of the wisdom pyramid. It's not like I'm I left the internet off of the wisdom pyramid. Like, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like we live in this world, and we should be engaged in it. And it, so um, news consumption should be there, 
right. it, yeah. it just it just can't be the dominant source for us because it just it pulls us into a surreal world whereas things like scripture the church nature pulls grounds us in reality um in a way that gives wisdom and the more time you spend in this little bubble of you know uh fox news or cnn or whatever whatever media bubble you gravitate towards that's just going to pull you into this skewed version of reality um that is not you know not the real world um and i think christians like uh we need to fight for reality like we need to be defenders of reality because reality is god's creation and um and reality doesn't fit into our politics it doesn't fit into our subjective tastes and preferences like reality is what it is um outside of what we want it to be and i think the the faithful christian life is learning to love and accept and defer to god's reality even when it conflicts with our preferences our flesh our politics it, it's going to conflict with all of that right mm-hmm. <laughs> there's there's yeah. things about scripture that should that should um rub up against all of us and and some things in scripture will rub up against different people different ways but all of us are called to subject ourselves to God's truth and God's reality and but we live in this world where it's increasingly possible to to only surround yourself with the truth that fits you you know yeah. and what and what you want to be true and the idea that you would ever you know willfully kind of defer to a reality that you don't quite like is you know it's a foreign concept in today's world. Why would you do that? Why would you why would you submit yourself to this ancient collection of writings from, you know, the Middle East when when it's costly to living your best life now? Like why would you do that? But that's wisdom, right? Wisdom is is about letting yourself be reminded that you are the creature. You are not the creator. The world isn't your reality to make up as you desire. There is a world that a creator designed and his design is the best thing for all of us. And so you will be better off submitting to his design and learning to love him for it. And that's what wisdom is. Yeah. And as you said, it's going to not if, but how it's going to like true wisdom, true reality is going to uh, rub up against and challenge our conceptions. If we're working, especially you were talking about politics, for example, if we're working from a particular political persuasion that's Mm -hmm. like a platform or ideology that's constructed by sinful human beings Mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be, if, if, if biblical wisdom, if reality isn't, if you're not sensing that it's confronting you in some capacity, you've constructed an idea of the Bible (laughs) or an idea of God that is in your own image and not his image. Um, we are going to be challenged forever until we're glorified. Um, let me ask you then with this, why do you think that this this topic is important for the ongoing health of the church and her ability to fulfill her mission? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's obviously related to what uh, Tim Keller was writing about. Like it's this is pulling the church apart. It's tearing the church apart at the seams because we're being formed and shaped more by these media environments out there than that we are being shaped by our, by the resources in our own tradition. Um, and that's a problem. Um, I would say at a more basic level, like wisdom is, you know, for the Christian wisdom is, is accessible, right? We, we actually believe in God. We believe scripture is infallible truth. Like if we're not availing ourselves of these, amazing sources of wisdom and building a life of wisdom upon these things, then what hope is there for anyone else in the world? What, yeah. So wisdom is only going to exist in this world if Christians are the standard bearers of it, you know? Uh, and, and too often these days, if you look around at Christians, you're, you're liable to see foolishness in them as much as in anyone else. And so that's tragic, right? We we want to carry out the mission we've been called to in part by being the people in the world 
that are, are carrying the torch of wisdom for the next generation. We want to be the people who, you know, in 20 years where uh, the internet has produced a whole generation of lost, lonely, you know, numb people who are just aimlessly wandering through the world with no sense of true north. Like yeah. Chris, Christians, we need to be the people who are left standing on a, on, a, yeah. on a solid foundation who, whose lives are marked by something different. Wisdom, mm-hmm. hope, you know, joy, um, certainty about truth, you know, that exists. Um, and, and, and I think that if we don't build habits of wisdom, now then we're not going to have that opportunity and and who are going to be the people that guide this lost generation um, in the future so that's what i would say and the new testament also one of the labels it uses for the gospel and the the what we believe as christians is the truth the message of truth the gospel mm-hmm. of truth and if we ourselves succumb to post-truth mentalities and falling prey to you know, bizarre ideas or conspiracy theories or what have you. Yeah. It, it it doesn't. Um. It it's not that it. It's not that that's not going to have an impact on our witness. Right. If on the one hand we are holding up a, a conspiracy theory, for example. <laughs> right. And on the other hand, we're saying, and we also believe this this thing. That's right. Pretty. That's pretty out there as well. That God yeah. raised this man from the dead. Yeah. Um. It doesn't help our credibility. Um, no. In, in the least. So. No. Um. How would you want to see churches then? My last question for you putting some of this into practice mm-hmm. as a church. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it, I think it just, uh, it would be wise for churches and for pastors to, um, to start talking to their people about um, media habits. I think, uh, like I said in the beginning, in terms of like, discipleship in the digital age is a huge new kind of challenge facing pastors. Like how do you walk people through the the choices that they make in terms of where they spend their time and where they give their attention in the internet age. So I think it just, it needs to be a topic that churches address, um, you know, whether it's reading, you know, a book like the wisdom pyramid in small groups or any number of other books that are coming out right now that are about technology and social media um, for Christians yeah, I just think that this needs to be kind of on the on the agenda for Christians because uh, spiritual formation is happening, you know, every day, every hour of the day. It doesn't just happen on church. It, spiritual formation happens where we spend our time. And when we're spending, you know, 60, 70 hours of our time on the Internet, social media, like our souls are being formed. And Mm -hmm. that's concerning, right? Because our souls are often being formed in very unchristlike, you know, directions. And um, many churches are seeing that, right? They're they're losing people in this battle of formation. And so if if pastors and churches care about that, then they need to, like, make this conversation um, a real one in churches. Where are we looking? What's feeding our souls? What does our diet look like? How can we... How can we make a rule of life, so to speak, where we incorporate the habits of scripture and, you know, nature and beauty and these other things in, in real ways? So, yeah, I mean, yeah. you can get creative with it. Like um, something I did last year was uh, for Lent, for the 40-day period of Lent, I did like a, a Wisdom 40 challenge where I basically took the Wisdom Pyramid, each of the levels, and I had like five or six like activity options suggestions that you could do to practice each level and so it was basically just a fun way over 40 days um leading up to easter to to just build in these like wisdom forming habits um so uh, i think just getting creative like that in your church even in your family i think this is something that families can like practice you know like our family like i tried to i tried to like structure our our lives around the habits of like scripture and the church and nature we go on walks a lot as a family so that i'm trying to instill these things in my kids um from a young age so i think it's habit is so huge in the christian life for our formation and um pastors and churches should 
should focus on how our habits, what, what our habits look like in, in the digital age. Yeah, we're being formed in one way or the other. It's not That's right. if we're being formed, but in what, yeah, what, direction in what direction we can be deformed or reformed according to the gospel. And if at all someone is feeling uh, a conversation like this, I could imagine could make us feel a little bit overwhelmed, um, a little bit maybe discouraged or nervous. Yeah. And I think it might maybe it's good to close um, with we, we do have a promise from Scripture about wisdom. We're in James 1 verse 5. It says that if any of us lacks mm-hmm. wisdom— we can ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to us. That is amazing. Like we need wisdom desperately. We've (laughs) always needed it. Proverbs Mm -hmm. was written a long time ago and it was needed then. It feels like we need it um, all the more now. You know, it maybe just feels pressing in a new way. But we are people who desperately need wisdom. Our sinfulness Mm -hmm. blinds us and we are sinfully foolish and we Mm. desperately need God's wisdom. And the amazing thing is that he promises to give it it. to us that's awesome amen yeah thanks so much for uh coming on today brett and thanks for doing the work of writing this book so that we can all benefit from it thank you kurt